Grand Canyon University's RN to BSN online degree program makes earning your bachelor's in nursing possible. Balance online coursework with local in-person clinicals to position yourself for potential leadership opportunities in the time you have from wherever you are, leaving room for what matters. Achieve your goals with your personalized plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. ¿Estás cansado de oír siempre lo mismo y escuchar la misma canción una y otra vez? Pues te damos la bienvenida a los podcasts de Autentia Desarrollo, donde os acercamos las mejores charlas técnicas de la comunidad. Grids 2019. The Android device farm that fits in a cloudy pocket. By Bruno Berachen. Reach Conference, your source for JVM knowledge. Buenas tardes. I tried. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Uh, so testing on Android devices has always been a chore in my company and elsewhere. You know, the device fragmentation makes it uh, impossible to test on each combination of screen size, density, CPU, GPU, and so on. Who has ever tested his application correctly on a few devices, and then, when you deploy it on a store, then an unknown combination of screen size, uh, density, GPU, or whatever makes it crash or behave not like you uh, expected it to? I did it. So when you add to that that in your company you have very few devices, uh, but emulators, well, you get the picture. That's why I tried to design a virtual device lab in 2013, which I called Liboli. This lab was never put into production because of um, network and software limitations. But this year, I'm presenting Podang, another tool that should make it. This solution uses a form of real devices. This will help our developers to send the Android devices into the cloud, but not this way. Thanks for having me today in Madrid for this part of my Mr. What If 2019 tour. In 2013, we were more and more Android developers uh, needing to test our applications in my company. To this day, we have around 500 mobile applications. There were already tools to test, uh, but we had to use our own devices plugged into our laptops or very slow emulators. The real devices were hard to book, disappeared sometimes, and were often outdated. There is one time when testing manually on your own phone is not scalable enough. To tell you the truth, it was hell on earth. But when I got the idea of using Android x86 port to crack Android VirtualBox images on demand and to link them to our continuous integration system, who was Jenkins at that time, We tried to address as many Android versions as possible and made lots of ROM cooking. No, not ROM cooking, ROM cooking. The Android debug bridge, uh, which allows to connect your machine to Android devices, was limited at that time to 16 devices binded locally. So we modified the code so that it now had no limit and could uh, bind to all available IPs. As Google was about to deliver the L version of its operating system, I named that Liboli, which is a famous start from the north of France. Unfortunately, Google did not choose Liboli, but Lollipop. A time when, went by, I had to realize that this proof of concept couldn't make it on production because of firewall problems, lack of stability of ADB, and other Jenkins limitations. So, with a heavy heart, I abandoned the project. 
At that time, a Japanese company named Cyber Agent created a product called STF for Smartphone Test Farm. This product aimed at gathering lots of Android devices and plug them into a dedicated server through USB in order to control them through a web interface. This was an internal product, though we didn't know about it. I then switched to other tasks, but kept thinking about Liboli because the needs were still there. Three years ago or so, they opened through the code, and after some time, it became clear that it could be used outside of its initial scope. I was still at some other task at the time, but hoped that someday I would be able to tackle this. Fast forward to 2017. I had the opportunity to work again on continuous integration for mobile development and proposed to make a proof of concept. My new colleague had a Mac Mini hanging around. He's the kind of guy you want to have around you if you want to fancy hardware. So he installed OpenSTF on his Mac, and we started from that. I already told you about my choice of Liboli. This time, I chose Podang as a name, as at the time we didn't know the name Google would choose for its next OS iteration. I was wrong once more, but anyway. Why are we still interested today in a solution to this with distant devices? Aren't emulators much better now? Aren't there lots of devices available through the company I work for? Well, we have some devices, but nobody knows who uses them. The emulators are a real pain in the neck within my company because of our security policy or Windows installation. As soon as you are launching an emulator, you have tons of ADB processes which are launched so that you can't use your laptop anymore. So, Even if it worked, um, how could we use them for continuous integration anyway from our laptop? That doesn't work. So our proposal makes a heavy use of OpenSTF, but also got farther, and I'll try to tell you how and why. So F stands for farm. The first thing to do is to gather some devices, which is <laughs> hardest part in part, and plug them into a USB hub, and then you link this hub to a Linux computer running OpenSTF. STF supports Android version from 2.3.3 to 9.0, FireOS, CyanogenMod, and other heavily Android-based distributions. Root is not required for any current functionality, and you can remote control any Android device from within your browser. You have a real-time screen view, uh, the support of the rotation. You can also type text directly from your own keyboard. There is also the touch support on the touchscreen via a piece of software called Minitouch. You have the two-finger pinch, rotate, zoom, gesture uh, on regular screen just by clicking Alt and moving the mouse. You also have the drag-and-drop installation and launching of APK files. You can open any website in all the web browsers which are installed on the machine, and you can also execute shell commands and see real-time output. You can also display and filter device logs. You can use also, which is important, ADB Connect to connect to a remote device as if it was plugged into your own laptop, regardless of the ADB mode of the device or if you're part of the same network or not, as long as you can reach the website, you can reach via ADB Connect your distant device. Uh, Android Studio and other ID are, of course, supported. As long as you have an ADB Connect, you have a connection to Android Studio, so you can debug your application uh, within Android Studio while watching the screen within your browser. You can also see which devices are connected, which are offline, unavailable, unauthorized, or unplugged. You can see who is using a device. You can search a device by its phone number, EMEI, Android version, operator, product name, and other attributes which are uh, pretty easy to write, in fact. 
you can uh, display a bright red screen when you are trying to locate a device in your phone. And you can track battery level and health of the device. So as you can see, the website you get when you install OpenSDF is really interesting when you want to make tests by hand, remotely, which is not really our use case. We want to use it for continuous integration. We want to be able to book and use a device when our continuous integration process has finished building our application. OpenSDF proposes a solution for that use case and thanks to the use of their API. It's a simple REST API. For the authentication, uh, within the web interface, you can create a token to authenticate later on through the REST API. You can then log in with just a call command. And once you're logged, thanks to this token, you can get some information about the available devices, get information about one particular device, about the logged user. You can look at the device that you have already booked, and so on. So the typical workflow would be log in, get the list of devices, choose one that fits your needs, book it, use it for the test, and then release it as you would do with the UI. That's pretty cool. Now, we have a Python script that, with just two variables, will book a device for you and launch you to launch your test remotely. You don't have to know where the device is located. For us, it could be anywhere in my company's venue, and for your future farm, it could be just about anywhere. You just ask for it, and you get it. I'm not a wizard at all, so let me tell you a few things about the architecture of the project. There are several ways to run OpenSDF. Let's start easy with the local version we use for the proof of concept. So you have to install Node.js, uh, 6.9 or more recent, ADB properly set up, RethingDB, graphics magic for resizing screenshots, zero MQ libraries for messaging, and protocol buffers libraries installed to serialize and deserialize data. You also have to install package config so that Node.js can find its libraries. By default, Core OS is a supported Linux distribution, but any Linux distribution should do the trick. As we had an old Mac Mini hanging around, we use this. It's not a platform that is supported because of bugs in the ADB um, implementation, but for development and test, this proved being enough. So after installing Homebrew on OSX, which would be Linux Brew on Linux, a few dependencies, we had the local OpenSTF server running. We then had to be able to access it from anywhere, whatever the building may be. That requirement we weren't able to meet with Liboli uh, was the signature of his death sentence. We have a solution for that, and we'll see later on how important this is for us. So, with our first version of the POC, our server was reachable from anywhere, despite being in our office just next to me. And then it could be used through any browser in any venue. But wait, even if we stop there, uh, would it be our target solution? I mean, okay, we've got a server. We can attach to it up to 49 devices thanks to several powered USB hubs and the USB ports of the machines. But where is the modularity? And where is the failover? Because of the price of the devices, we would have to host the solution in a closed, secure cabinet. One main web server hosting up to 49 devices in a secure cabinet? What about the network throttling? We could have to send through the network up to 49 videos of the screens. And what about the heat generated by, uh, with batteries ready to, ready to explode because of the heat? It does not look such like a, a good solution after all, more like a recipe for a catastrophe. Fortunately, there is another solution supplied by OpenSTF with slave servers hosting the devices and one main server who will root them all. 
So if you want to install it, you have to ensure that each of your slave or your main server can handle the RMQ, protobuf, or Docker. As you can see, there are lots of different services, and that's pretty overwhelming. But the reason behind that can be found in the name STF, which is an acronym for Smartphone Testing Farm. So naturally, this is distributed enough to be deployed at scale. So don't get stuck on this image, it's unnecessarily complicated. It's there to show that we have lots of different units communicating via 0MQ and protocol buffers. We have just to understand and remember that we have two main roles, the app server and the provider. Given this architecture, you can run so-called provider hosts, which are merely the physical machines where you will connect your phones to. These will just run an ADB service called ADB, and a provider service. At scale, you will have multiple of these hosts. They will all connect to a so-called app server, which run the other 12 services that make up the SCF infrastructure. Now, the app role. Uh, the main server contains several units at the authentication, the routing DB proxy, the log service, the storage plugin, the WebSocket, the API, and so on, all communicating via 0MQ. You can distribute these units as you wish, but we chose to, to use just one server. So, how does that all play together? The website is hosted by the main server called App Server, and if anyone wants to uh, book a device, he logs into his account. Once he's logged, he will have access to the list of devices, and this list is aggregated by the App Server thanks to all of the providers who have available device devices. So, the end user doesn't know and doesn't have to know uh, where the device is located. That's that simple from the user point of view. Let's have a look at the workflow and the magic glue that makes this possible. So, the device is USB connected and provisioned by the provider, which means that the stf.apk is installed on the device. The provider then notifies the app server over the API service on the AT port, and the end user can then connect uh, to the web page via nginx of the app server and choose a device. Then, he can connect via ADB from his computer to the dedicated provider that is hosting the device. That's not directly to the device, but to him it looks like he's connected directly to the Android device. The app service then negotiates a VNC access with Minicab protocol of the WebSocket on the AT port to the provider. So a stream URL is then answered to the app service for VNC access, which is given to the final client for the desired Android device. There is a special VLAN in our company's office for special needs. The machines in this VLAN can be seen from our development laptop, but also from our continuous integration machines, and even from other laptops from other countries. This would not be possible if we were using the office network, of course, at the firewall blocks. Communication between the buildings and, of course, between the sites, too. So this VLAN is also available in the server rooms, which means that we can have machines in our office just next to us communicating with machines in the server rooms and the other way. So that's perfectly what we needed. The app part of OpenSTF could then be hosted in the server room in a virtual machine, and the providers could then be in any office of any building, as long as we have an Ethernet plug, uh, Ethernet plug linked to this VLAN, which is not the case by default, of course. You have to justify why you should be authorized to use this VLAN. So that's perfectly what we needed. I'm perfectly aware that our proposal would make no sense if we don't propose a solution to book devices ahead of time. 
So let's say that the team is happy um, with the platform as it is, but wants to schedule a test campaign for a whole week. So what will happen if they can't get the devices they need when their campaign starts? A whole week of tests goes to the trash can? That's not possible. Regarding the authentication, uh, there is a mock-up that you can see, but also an LDAP implementation so that it works with our internal uh, authentication system. As for the booking, uh, we are checking on the 101 and 617 pull requests regarding the ability um, for testers to book some devices ahead of time uh, in, to plan for a test campaign, for example. So when a device is booked, we will have to inform the managers of the corresponding providers that they won't be available for anybody but the bookers on that period of time. So what do we have here? With just two variables, you can now book a device, use it for your test as it is, as if it was hooked to the GitLab CI machine. But sometimes the test can be long, pretty damn long. Fortunately, Spoon, that we already use, is able to do some test sharding. That means that it will be able to use all the devices that you can book to run your test. It will slice your test into different groups and then run a group of tests on each device. This way, your test will be finished way earlier than if you use just one device. So this is the way we call uh, the test up to now. We just have to add as many Android SDF API lines as needed to book the devices. And there is nothing more to do. The Spoon Runner script is configured to use auto-sharding so that it will, by default, execute your test on the connected devices. So our the proof of concept was working with Mac Mini under OS X uh, with the VLAN. But as it's difficult to get money to buy Android devices in the company, why spend that money on some fancy hardware? Furthermore, OS X is not the recommended uh, OS for OpenSDF. You can always install Linux on it afterward. Uh, we did it later on, but that makes an expensive Linux machine. So there comes a knack. It's a dirt cheap x86 box under 200 euros. That could do the job, but where is the fun? And as I am cheap, well, that's too much money. So here comes a Raspberry. I already had a few Raspberry 3B at home. Who hasn't? By the way, who owns or has already worked with Raspberry Pi? Okay, so we're four of us. Uh, more than 90 millions have been sold to this day. So I had one with a bad version of Android TV and another one with Lubuntu Mate. Uh, the network part is not that good. It's only fast Ethernet. But as I had them hanging around, why not use them? I thought that not each and every team will be able to afford a Mac Mini or even a NUC. So I did not expect much from it. At its uh, slow CPU with only one gigabyte of RAM and overall my experience with Lubuntu Mate was not so good. However, a few years back, I had played with Raspberry Pi 2 and Docker with a colleague, so I knew Raspberry were usable with Docker. So with the 3B, it had to work too. On to the building part now. For um, Lubuntu, after a few tweaks here and there, I installed Docker CE on the Pi. I also needed Docker Compose, as OpenSTF orchestrates lots of different containers with Docker Compose. Unfortunately, Docker Compose was not available for Lubuntu, so I had to rebuild it from source with the help of Docker. You have to build locally a Docker image and then use it to generate the Docker Compose binary. Later on, I started everything from scratch again, this time installing Raspbian. It was more natural to use it on the Pi and more performant too. 
So the process to prepare a pie for OpenSCF was now simpler. Just install Raspbian, install Docker, install pip, and then install Docker Compose thanks to pip. Later on, I discovered another distro <laughs> called Ipriot OS. The guys behind that distro called themselves the Docker Pirates to express their rebellious and anti-establishment attitude. As most people were only concerned with Docker on big server, they went the opposite direction and asked themselves how to use container technology on really small devices. They believe that Docker can be even more useful on small devices than on big servers. I think they're right. Ipriot is a minimal Debian-based operating system that is optimized to run Docker. It makes it dead easy to use Docker on any Raspberry Pi, just downloading and flashing a prepared SDK image. From start to finish, it takes less than five minutes to get started with Docker Compose, Docker Swarm, or even Docker Machine on Raspberry Pi. That's really cool. Then, I thought I had scored a home run. Just launching Docker Compose within the OpenSTF repository would do the trick, wouldn't it? Well, I was wrong. Even if Docker images can be executed on any platform running Docker, these platforms have to be for the same processor as the one the image has been built for. Of course, images built for x86 can't execute properly on ARM processors. OpenSTF provider image hasn't been built for ARM, neither the other images composing it. So I had to rebuild the main image on the Pi because I had some modifications to make, but also the other images uh, in the dependencies. It was not such a big deal after all. Create a new ARM image based on Alpine Linux, reference it to build the other images, change a few dependencies, and wait, and vent, and wait. And after some time, you get the image. I was pretty happy for five minutes until I realized I could not use our continuous integration um, system to build it. All this work around OpenSTF is to make it possible for our users to test their application within our CI CD. I build my Docker images, my soft, everything with that CI, which is tightly linked to the x86 architecture. So it's not such a good idea to build my images on the Pi directly. If I can't build them on the CI server either, what am I going to do? Then I thought that Docker Hub had to be able to build my images as the Alpine Linux image I found was there. I then copied my repositories to my GitHub account and was almost sure I would get a fresh Docker image for ARM processor five minutes later. Bummer. Once again, I was wrong. Docker Hub is also based on the next 86 architecture and can't build ARM images. At that time, I just did not get how the Alpine Linux image made it to Docker Hub. I then spent some time thinking of using a Pi cluster to build Docker image. Found lots of mighty fine examples and then real ARM servers, which looked perfect for the job until I saw the price tag. I made a little bit of research and I quickly realized that even if it worked perfectly, it was not such a good idea to put the SD card under such a high level of stress. With a good heatsink, you can torture your Raspberry quite a lot, overclock it, make it do heavy computation, but writing often on the SD card will greatly shorten its lifespan. So, what could I do? My CI server can't handle building my images, Docker Hub neither. Doing it on the Pi will kill the SD card sooner or later. Am I stuck? Back in 2013, Resin.io, which is now Berlina, ported Docker to the ARM processor. Shortly afterwards, they wanted to use that to offer ARM build to their users. However, ARM server hardware was difficult to find at that time, so they started looking at an emulated solution. 
enter QMU. QMU is a wonderful project aiming at emulating other CPU architectures. So the first step, uh, if you want to emulate a whole container, uh, since a container can only access its own private file system, the first step is getting the emulator into the container. This simply means copying the executable in the image. However, building the above uh, image produces this kind of error, which is not so descriptive. The reason for this error is that a QMU ARM is a dynamically linked x86 binary, which requires a lot of other x86 binaries that don't exist in the image. So the loader tries to find those files but fails, and so reports no such file or directory. The easiest way to fix this is to use a statically linked version of QMU, which will have no dependencies on its environment. Creating one is a matter of grabbing the source code, running configure with minus minus static, and then make. After this, the linked uh, executable will be in QMU ARM Linux user QMU ARM. As you can see, uh, using the statically built QMU binary now works within the container. There are several other steps to emulate a whole container, like loading a specific module of the kernel, improving the syntax, and so on. So once all these steps are done, you are then able to build an ARM image within Docker Hub with that kind of a nice syntax. I then felt like I had invented the fire. Later on, Shippable allowed to build ARM Docker images directly from GitHub sources and, of course, to push them to Docker Hub. So I don't have to destroy my SD card and wait the whole day for get, to get an, a Docker image. I can do it on powerful ARM hardware, and best of all, it's for free. So, what do we have now? A working SCF provider on the Raspberry Pi with phones connected to it and images built on Docker Hub or Shippable. That's a pretty nice first step in the right direction. Now, down the rabbit hole. The OpenSCF ARM image is not up to date with the OpenSCF x86 image, so another long journey began. Trying to update the ARM image proved quite difficult because the updated versions of the different products composing it, everything DB, NOD, NPM, and so on, were not easily compiled on ARM. So I opened quite a few issues on the various projects, and I'm still waiting for fixes on several of them. Then, as I had discovered other Linux distros like Armbian or Ypriot, I began to dig and found that the Raspberry Pi 3B had an old sock and that there were tons of other more recent ARM socks with better performance and lots of other SBC makers that produce other cards that I had to try. I also had to try and build my own images for the candidate boards that I thought would be useful for me. But I've been telling you about SBC without explaining this acronym. Let me say a few words about them. So SBC stands for single board computer, so a computer made of just one board. These computers are built around a SOC, yes, another acronym, stay focused. So that's on a single chip, you will find a CPU, a GPU, RAM, and other chips that are used to control the board hardware, GPIO, for example, USB sensors, LCD screens, and so on. So GPIO are pretty common on these boards, as this set of pins allow to communicate with the outside world thanks to sensors, microcontroller cards like the Arduino, motors, relays, and so on. They allow most of the time to plug in some hats, caps, mezzanine extension that will give new features to the board, like having a battery, uh, plug-in uh, disk drive, adding more USB or Ethernet ports, anything. Most of the time, this card will run a version of Linux based on Ubuntu, but lots of them also can run a recent version of Android. Android, really? 
This led to another experimentation. Lots of these cards are really technology jewels for quite cheap. The downside of it is that the manufacturers don't really care about the code quality or documentation, so once you have bought them, you are really on your own. Orange Pie, for example, makes good SBC for very little money, but the OSZ ship is lame. Their Android version is based on the very old Linux kernel, and it's not very stable. Their Linux version is a shame, almost unusable. Fortunately, there is a real community of die-hard fans that build regularly kernels for these boards and even complete distributions like Armbian. So I've been able to make some tests with really recent Linux kernels on some of these boards. There is another specificity that makes it difficult to start tinkering with this board. This is the U-Boot. It's an open-source, cross-platform bootloader that provides out-of-the-box support for hundreds of embedded boards and many CPUs, including PowerPC, ARM, Xscales, MIPS, and so on. But if your card is not handled by U-Boot, you're stuck. End of the story. So I won't detail it now, but it's almost as if you had to develop your own BIOS for your PC, but without the specs of the board. So we had OpenSCF running thanks to Docker on a Raspberry Pi and giving access to phones plugged into its USB port. That's a neat solution, but that's quite cheap, uh, and I'm cheap, so that's perfect. But my curiosity was aroused because some of the SBCs I spotted are supposed to run Android. So what if, if I could use them? Uh, these SBCs instead of phones for my test. This would make sense money-wise, uh, starting at 9 euros, and would be, be better maybe in the long run because of the lack of batteries and case. So why not try to make an orange and raspberry smoothie? So I got myself an orange pie one plus. So this board is built on the or winner H6 sock. So it runs the same frequency than the Raspberry Pi. It has the same amount of memory. Uh, it's also four cores, and it's an ARM V8. So it can handle as OTG, so that we can connect it to any computer running OpenSTF. I gave it a good end-user test and hoped that it could be seen by OpenSTF like any other Android device. In case this would not work, we could still use it as um, uh, OpenSTF server at uh, its running Linux also. So I plugged it into the Pi and waited waited and waited. The OpenSTF website running on the Pi never showed the orange Pi. The logs told me later on that a piece of software called Minitouch, uh, part of OpenSTF, was not able to deal with this kind of device. The problem is linked to the lack of touchscreen. I wanted to try Walkaround, so I had to build it, deploy it with NPM on Travis, and build another Docker image with it uh, on Docker Hub, so that was quite a long and a frightening process. But uh, it did not work. So uh, back to the rabbit hole. To this day, the problem is not yet solved. But at least I have now the workflow to make it progress. So the Orange Pi OnePlus is out of the pictures for the time being as an Android device. So where were we at that time? Raspberry Pi is running OpenSTF, but can't handle Orange Pi because of Minitouch. So we're still using Raspberry Pis and phones. That's cool, but can we do anything better with what we have on hand? What about using the Orange Pi as an open SCF provider then? For this project, I decided that cheaper was cooler. So as the Orange Pi OnePlus is less than half the price of the Raspberry Pi, let's go for it. It didn't work. The support in the mainline kernel for this SOC is not ready yet. Ambient is working on it, but for the time being, the uh, kernel uh, that ships with it is too old to run Docker. 
So this board will be a really good and cheap solution for hosting an OpenSDF provider, but a few months from now. So it's out of the picture for Linux too. What about Orange Juice now? The OnePlus has an older brother, which is also smaller and cheaper. It's a Range Pi Zero. So it's cheaper and supports only 512 megabytes of memory. I was not really confident about this uh, being able to work as an OpenSDF provider, but I was wrong. Even if it swaps a little bit, it's powerful enough to handle four phones with uh, OpenSDF under Ambion. So with the latest Ambion developments on uh, RAM management, I think this card could be the target one. As for its use with Android, of course, it suffers the same problem that the OnePlus. But as soon as the community will have solved this problem, I think the combination of a zero plugged into a zero could be the cheapest and the smallest STF farm on Earth. Now, what if we could make our OpenSTF provider beefier? Our target platform is really cheap and good enough for a few phones or SBCs, but what if we want to plug more devices in it? The CPU power is not enough for more than four Android devices. And regardless of the CPU power, if we ever want to get the screen video stream, which is not our use case, the fast Ethernet uh, won't be enough, and the memory is already full. So, what are we looking for? A better SOC, faster Ethernet, and more memory? There are lots, in fact, too many uh, candidates for that job. Even the latest Raspberry 3B Plus uh, supports a faster SOC, one gigabyte memory, and one gigabyte uh, Ethernet. So why not just keep it to our first idea and just use a Raspberry Pi? Well, there are several good and bad reasons. The Raspberry Pi is called by some overpriced piece of beep. The SOC is quite old, even the latest 3B+, and Raspbian is a 32-bit system on a 64-bit SOC. So you can switch to other distributions like Arc Linux and, um, or to Ipriot OS, which has a 64-bit uh, distribution, but the community around building distros for the Raspberry Pi is not really big. And Armion doesn't want to touch it because it doesn't use U-boot, but the proprietary firmware. So, the major pro of using a Raspberry Pi is the community. And the major cons are its hardware and the price. So, what would you choose? The quality or community? Would you like to have tons of people helping you making a lead blink? or have the key people help you set up your own Linux distro on a best bang for the buck? Yes, I chose quality. Next, the cool factor. Having something unusual and more powerful than a Raspberry Pi is way more cool. Okay, I admit it's not really a good selling point, but this Android XU4 is more expensive than the Raspberry Pi, but it supports two gigabytes of memory, eMMC, an octa-core CPU, USB 3, and a very recent Linux kernel on Armbion. This makes a top-notch OpenSTF provider. Now, what if we used exotic pieces of hardware, like an Ethernet switch or a TV box? In fact, at work or at home, we are already next to tons of ARM-powered hardware. So this particular piece of hardware is a ClearFog router with a very powerful SOC and six Ethernet plugs. So why not use that to uh, allow for more devices on the same SBC with OpenSTF? I know it's a router and it's not supposed to run OpenSTF, but I don't care. Uh, it's kind of pricey, uh, but Ypriot OS is already running on that beast, so it would work out of the box. But let's keep focused. We want something cheap. 
There are tons of cheap TV boxes in the wild, like this one on Amazon, AliExpress, Dealextreme, and so on. Some of them are sporting a powerful sock, have lots of ports, and can run Armion. So for the price of the Raspberry Pi, or even less, you get a working TV box with its power supply, running Android TV, and Armion able. That's super cool. So I'm currently investigating this field, but that's not a plug-and-play solution. I don't expect to have a complete solution based on a TV box soon, but that's still really interesting for me. Uh, as some of them are running Android and not Android TV, they support OTG and Armbian, which means that we could build an Android device farm with these boxes just used as Android devices, but also as an OpenSTF server. Now, what I'd like you to remember from this talk is that if you have an idea and little to no money, you can set up a proof of concept for cheap. You will be able to find recent Linux distros with recent kernels and some SBC with enough memory um, to be able, um, usable for your proof of concept. You could also run various versions of Android or even build your own Linux starting from U-Boot and Linux kernel. There are lots of use for Docker on such small cards as a server or as a client. As some of them implement power over Ethernet, you could just hang them somewhere without any power supply and let them operate. Most of these SBC also support um, a GPIO and USB ports so that you can plug sensors or hats on top of them and start interacting with the outside world. You can also quite easily set them up so that they will work in a cluster. More and more SBCs are launching every month, and as time goes by, uh, more and more of them become candidates for becoming a part of the Podine farm. For the Android ones, I'm looking for ones which support USB on the go, so that they can be seen with ADB. And for the Linux ones, I'm looking for recent kernels, so that I can get a recent Docker version, Gigabit Ethernet, USB, DDF4, when available. So when I find a new card that doesn't have all of these features, but at the bottom price, I have to test it, however. So the NanoPi 503, for example, uh, has everything, uh, gigabit Ethernet, uh, USB, OTG, and sports the same price tag than the Raspberry Pi. So it's uh, 35 euros with twice as many cores. I brought one with me with a touchscreen. So this one runs as an OpenSTF provider beautifully and as an Android device beautifully too. That's a good advancement. So this card has proved being really useful for our farm. It doesn't suffer the mini-touch problem, and it works as a provider as an, uh, and as an Android device. Now, another board, uh, La Fritz. It has lots of cool features, but only fast Ethernet. It performs better than the Raspberry Pi 3, but the price tag is totally crazy. It's four euros for the 512 megabytes version and nine euros for the one gigabyte version. That's totally crazy, difficult to believe, but you have for nine euros a car that is more powerful than the Raspberry Pi and that can run a very recent version of Android and of the Linux kernel. So our microscale farm, not this one, <laughs> not even this one, yeah, this one, so our microscale farm is a mess. <laughs> I mean, our microscale farm is not a final one. Uh, all these different boards are difficult to arrange properly, but each and every month, we could make another study and find a new set of cards within our price range. For the time being, we'll keep on the Orange Pi Zero set, but I'd like to set up another one with La Fritz. 
So now, if you have a Raspberry Pi stuck in your drawer or in your pocket, get it out and install OpenSTF provider server on it with that Docker Compose file. Maybe you don't have a server somewhere able to be used as an OpenSTF app server. You know what? You can use one Raspberry Pi for the app server and as many as you want for the provider servers. But wait, there is more. I tried it, and the standalone OpenSTF server can be used on one single Raspberry Pi. So long for the modularity and long-live low budget. Just kidding. That should just help you to get a foot in the door. The good news don't stop here. Are there any iOS developers in the room? Okay. <laughs> I am too. So last August, uh, OpenSTF main developers said that iOS support was in their roadmap for this year. There is an issue opened uh, in OpenSTF GitHub repo regarding iOS, and it is still alive with new inputs dating from last month. So this new effort targeting iOS is not dead, and I have high hopes for it to happen this year. Our project has already hit production. We are currently using it without a glitch. Everything, despite the documentation for the time being, is available on GitHub. So if you already have phones, an old PC or Raspberry Pi, don't hesitate to start tinkering with that. And maybe let us know when you'll throw them into the cloud. Thanks a lot for your attention. Si te ha gustado el podcast y quieres estar a la última en tecnología, suscríbete a nuestro canal de iVoox e y escúchanos donde quieras. Para más información, autentia.com.